0: Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about
1: legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer with... Me, Joe Patrice. I also have Ellie Mistal, but not in front of me. He's all the way up in the wilds of upstate New York. I'm in the clouds, man. Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets. Oh, yeah. No, the Mets. How, how does it feel to, uh, to actually be winning games?
2: It doesn't feel like we're winning. It feels like I'm. Yeah, you know, did you see the most recent Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise hanging on off the side of the plane as it takes off? Technically, he's flying.
1: That's how I feel. <laughs> Well, it's been impressive. It's almost like New York has a second team. Ah, uh, uh, well. Um, so I, I
2: don't have I don't have a sense of humor about that. Just just go to hell.
1: Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So we had our conference between our last show and this one. So it kind of feels like we've been away from this for a while. Well, not that we weren't broadcasting because we were doing reports from the conference, but.
2: Lots have happened to grind my gears um, in the interim, but I, but the the thing that's on me right now is I made a slight, I don't want to say I made a mistake because that would admit failure. Uh, (laughs) All over the internet last week, what was going around viral was this woman who sued her um, now 12, then eight year old nephew um, for breaking her wrist with an exuberant hug. Now this nephew, the kid's mother, her sister is dead And she goes over to the kid's uh, birthday party, eight-year-old birthday party, and he jumps up into her arms, and he says, Aunt Jen, hi. And he accidentally breaks her wrist and she, she sued uh, the family, the, the father and the son, the surviving father and the son, um, for damages. Now, uh, th- th- this was all over the internet. I called her, I think, the worst spinster in the world. And I, I honestly do think she's a terrible person. I mentioned in my post that, obviously, she wasn't trying to sue the 12-year-old directly because the 12-year-old has no money. Uh, she was going for the insurance, the homeowner's insurance money from the dad. After all the internet... Fire went out. But what came to light was that potentially she was forced to sue the father's homeowner's insurance by her own health insurance. And I didn't really see that angle. I, even though I saw the insurance angle, I didn't see the the forceness of the angle. I thought there was, you know, still an opportunity for her to choose not to, uh, not to sue this kid. Um, so I felt bad um, for calling her the worst spinster in the world for approximately uh, three seconds. And then I moved on from feeling bad about a mistake that I made online. And I <laughs> went right yeah. back to, yeah, to we're just going to gloss more. over that. Yeah, we're just going to gloss yeah. over that. To
1: making more. Uh, no, I mean, it, it struck me when the story first came out. My, I, I always begin my analysis of any any legal conflict like that from the premise that the insurance company is the worst actor. Like that they're clearly the worst people in the world. So when that, I saw that, all I could think was, oh, this is going to be one of those situations where yeah, the insurance well, company's to blame. Well, me too. I just thought the insurance company was to blame
2: in a different way. Yeah. Um, I thought basically it was the father's homeowner's insurance um, that was to blame as opposed to her health insurance um, that potentially was forcing her into this particular suit. But anyway, so I took what could have been anger at myself and I transferred that all into our still broken and terrible healthcare system, because the bottom frickin' line is that if we had single payer, like I was promised when I voted for Democrats all my life, We wouldn't have this, this woman wouldn't have this issue. We as a society wouldn't have this issue. So much of what we, when we talk, when Joe talks about insurance companies being the worst ever, insurance lawyers being the worst ever, um, and tort lawyers being the worst ever, so much of that is because we don't have government health insurance where everybody can be taken care of for their medical needs. Instead... What we have is a lottery system. If you get hurt in just the right way by just the right person in just the right circumstances, you can get your medical bills being taken care of. But if the numbers don't come up on your side, you're screwed. That's our health insurance in this country. And that's how this woman got screwed. That's how this 12-year-old got screwed. And that's how I got kind of screwed into making a wrong point on the internet.
1: Wow. It's – I mean it is – Yeah, no, it's admirable the amount of superstructure you can, of substantive superstructure you can build around the fact that you just didn't do basic research. I wouldn't call it basic. Okay. So anyway, with that, maybe we should get you out of the hole that you continue to dig for yourself, though it's entertaining for me, and bring in our guest. Our guest is Nikalexiu. He's the, and this is a mouthful, he is the Director, LLM, and Alumni Advising Assistant Director, Career Services at Vanderbilt Law School. The long and short of it is he helps people with legal jobs at Vanderbilt. Hey, Nick. Hey, guys. I'm excited to talk about the labor force participation rate. Oh, wait. Is that not the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess in a sense it is. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about legal jobs. So, Right. Walk- in, in, in a backward sense, it is. Yeah. So walk us through... Walk us through uh, what happened. Now you're you're a lawyer. You actually you actually went to a great law school, like possibly the greatest law school, and uh, definitely top five. Uh, <laughs> Brian
0: Dalton says that it's the third best law school in New York State, but we obviously have learned not to listen to Brian. Now,
1: haven't <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is. Oh, that's such a brutal sentence. That's Go just, purple. It's just wrong, but. Go go violets indeed, um, but it you know
0: I I can't when I meet Brian for the first time I'll have not to yell at him too loud because he does have Vanderbilt at number
1: fifteen in the country and we're very proud of that. Oh yes, in the real rankings and of course you're talking about the above the law top fifty rankings. You you do your uh, your new employers at Vanderbilt are very very well ranked. So well, you certainly ain't good. talking about the SEC so. Aw. So you're a lawyer, but now, and you've had some interesting jobs we will lead a little bit more into some of the other, kind of referencing some of the other stuff you've done, but now walk us through what you do at Vanderbilt. Sure.
0: So I am part of the career services team here at Vanderbilt, and I wear a few different hats. I am one of the five counselors here at Vanderbilt that works with our JD students. So we divide up the class amongst the five of us, and we work with those students as much as we possibly can to make sure that at the end of the first year they have a job that they want, at the end of the second year they have a job that they want, and by the time they graduate, they're in a position that they want to be in in practicing law or doing whatever they want to do with their JD after they graduate. I also, as Director of LLM and Alumni Advising, I work with our alums, and so Vanderbilt Law students go off to do great things around the country, but from time to time, and as I know, as you alluded to, I've changed careers, both of you have changed careers, it's time for our alums to want to do something else. And so if they'd like, they'd reach out to me and I sort of walk them through sort of the things that are available to them, what sort of career changes they can make and, you know, where they'd want to move to. And then also as sort of, over the last several years, I think around the country and at Vanderbilt in particular, we've seen a rise in our LLM class or international LLM class. And so we went from having, I would say, just a handful of international LLMs five or six years ago to this year we have 63 international LLMs. And so I work with those students directly to try to figure out the ones especially who want to stay here in the U.S., work with them on helping them secure uh, gainful employment after they graduate. And in the LLM program, and like the JD program, they're only going to be here for a year or so. They get here and we sort of work with them from day one on getting them in the position that they want.
2: Now, Nick, are kids coming to school nowadays at all prepared to kind of buckle down and focus on getting a job? I went to law school. I, got, I, I started in 2000. When, in 2000, the only thing that I had to do to make sure to get a job, that I was going to get a job, was to stay out of jail. And I don't mean like stay out of jail all three years. I mean, like not actively be in jail when I was when I was applying for jobs. But that was a different time. Um, Are are kids today kind of prepared for the job market that they're
0: signing up for? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, back in in your day, and I graduated in 2008, and so we basically had to stay out of jail during that two-week window in which law firms were making their evaluations on their summers. Um, but, you know, under now guidelines, we're not allowed to meet with our one O class until October 15th. And so we met with them yesterday for the first time. And I was talking to my 30-some-odd first-year students, and I said, you know, you guys have come to a wonderful law school, and, but you've also come to a time that's a bit more challenging in order for law students to find jobs. When I was in law school, I didn't—I wouldn't say NYU had a job tree that you sort of went in the backyard and plucked a job from, but it was somewhat similar to that. And that's just not the way the world works now. But we've seen growth in the legal market over the last several years. But the students that I'm encountering now, the first-year students, are very diligent. and They're already ready. I've already had students come up to me and talk to me about sort of, internships they want to do after their first year is complete. And the second and third year students I've met with are very diligent. They they know that they have to network. They know that they have to reach out to people. They know that they need to be doing the groundwork because, you know, we have had great success. You know, the 2Ls who are, I guess, now halfway through their uh, fall semester 2L year, who went through on-campus interview here at Vanderbilt, a lot of them did very well. We had higher placement rates through OCI this year than we had the year before, and that number was higher than the year prior to that. So we're seeing a lot of growth in the 2L OCI market. But even for those students who don't find a job through that more traditional route, they're really buckling down and knowing what they have to do. And sort of we're here in the career services office to help them, to guide them through that process.
2: Harvard had a jobs tree. It was right behind the Adderall Bush
0: Right.
1: Well, when you have an endowment of $10 billion, you can do re- really great research into a job tree. <laughs> so I want to focus a little bit on the alumni stuff, which that's a service that I don't think a lot of people recognize law schools might be offering. I kind of felt like once I got my job out of law school, I was on my own for any future job that I would ever want to have.
2: Me too. But that was also because I was running away from the debt collectors. So I didn't really want to call and let them know where I
1: was. <laughs> Ellie was trying to avoid
0: leading a paper trail of any sort, and so really phone calls or email were not very indicative of what he wanted to do. But for other kids who are in good standing. I think part of it is that Vanderbilt is unique. Of the top 20 law schools, by your metric at the Law or by US News, I believe we're the smallest class of the top 20. And so it fosters a really great sense of atmosphere between our students. And we get to work closely with them when they're here. And because of that, they know that they can come back to us when it's time for them to make a career change. And I will say, you know, I've had a few different jobs over the years, and when I've made those various transitions, my first first thought would not be to have contacted my law school. And I think that's in part because, and Joe, I mean, I don't know how big NYU was when you were there, but when I graduated, it was about 500 and some odd kids. I will say NYU is a wonderful school, and they do great things, and they are the best law school in New York, regardless of what Brian Dalton wants to say. But because I think we have a little, we're have we a little bit small and we're a little bit more intimate, I think our students know that they can turn to us. And I give all the credit in the world to the, the dean and the upper administration here at Vanderbilt for sort of creating this position and having this bucket in which someone can be dedicated to working with our alums. And I will say, you know, we don't have as many alums reach out to us as we are, you know, in terms of as opposed to the JDs we're working with while they're here or the LLMs. But in my few months on the job so far, I've been in contact with no less than, I would say, eight or 10 alums who are looking to make a transition.
2: The intimacy uh. sounds sexy. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, 3L market? Like in this market, if you don't have a job um, coming out of your 2L summer, I mean, just how screwed
0: are you? You're, you're actually you're actually not. And I was having dinner uh, actually during the Democratic debate, which because I love both of you greatly, I went back and watched Democratic debate later. So we could talk about that later on in the show. But I was having dinner with some recruiters at a vault top 10 firm. And they were talking about the biggest thing that they've seen a shift in recently is three L market. And I know, Ellie, you've written about this. And I think, Joe, you, you have as well. And sort of how there's a growing donut hole, I think, amongst law firms, wherein during the great recession and whatnot, they laid off a lot of junior associates. Now there's a Growing sort of donut hole for mid-level associates. And so they're calling us because they want to fill those mid-level spots, but they're also calling us because they're being a little bit more restrictive or a little bit more cautious in the hiring for their two L summers. And so they have the two L's come in and they have them take part during the summer program. And either students might reject offers or they're not quite at the size they want. And so the firms come to us, and I will say we've had I would say no less than a dozen instances of law firms reaching out to us directly and asking for really great 3L students or even just posting it on our general simplicity board for really great candidates that we can recommend to them to fill spots for their, to start in the fall of uh, 2016. And I think that's a growing part. And these recruiters we were having dinner with really emphasize that they think it's going to be a shift more towards The 3.0 market because and you both experienced OCI and I did as well and it's it's a strange way to hire someone you're basically and I when I talk to my awesome way to hire someone are you kidding me no but I, I think it's it's an interesting way because you are making you know law firms I think I've read a statistic once that for a law firm to Basically, get even on the investment they make in a young attorney. That attorney has to stay for about three years. In terms of how much they pay them as the summer associate, the cost associated with the summer associate program, and then the salary you get as a junior associate, and the fact you don't fill out that much, you have to stay around for about three years. And law firms, especially the big law firms of the world, are making their decisions based on one year of grades. And you're basically between that and the level of school you go to, you're trying to project how that person is going to fit at your firm. And I think more and more law firms are recognizing that that's sort where of projection might not always work. So they're still having summer associate classes, except for right now I think it was Quinn Emanuel who decided that they're going to just cut their summer associate program entirely. But aside from Quinn, I think it's firms are still having those summer associate programs, but they also realize that the 3 market is a great untapped market and they can
1: get a fuller look at candidates. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, I, I never really had thought through the logic on that, but it does seem as though We're seeing a trend of a lot of these big law, the traditional big law employers cutting back, being more cautious, cutting out waste here and there where they think they find it. The idea of taking a flyer on somebody off of two semesters worth of grades seems like an obvious place where you'd want to minimize risk.
0: Right, and between the three of us talking here today, I think only one of us lasted more than three years at our big law firm, if I remember correctly. Woo-hoo. Yes. Well, Joe's kind of dumb, though. So, where else yeah. was he gonna go?
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that the person who's stuck around big laws, big law, the longest is therefore the dumb one. Whatever. Persistent. He's this persistent one. There we go. That's much better. No. So, can, let's. Tra- speaking yeah. of persistent. Okay. Can we can we can we talk a little bit about the burn? We can transition. So for background. Nick, you've worked in DC dealing with the law and policy. So we thought maybe we could, mm-hmm. given that uh, last week we'd had the Democratic debates, we thought that we would have a quick go through of like evaluating our quick hit thoughts. I wrote an article on ATL Redline of what I thought, definitely, but want to hear what everyone's felt about it.
2: I guess, Nick, what I really wanted to ask you is uh, you and Joe both have kind of debating experience. And I I wanted to ask you guys about what did you think about the the tactics um, each of the candidates have been using, especially the tactics of uh, Bernie Sanders um, versus a tactic of a Donald Trump? They're both, in a way, insurgents um, in the party. They both have very different tactics. I I think Bernie's tactic is to say things that are true um, and Trump's is to not. But (laughs) – from a from a kind of technical perspective, um, what do you guys see as the differences? Well,
0: you know, I, as your second consecutive guest on this podcast, who is part of the 1998 Repco Skiermont uh, Lab at the Michigan National Debate Institute, I'm happy to field this question.
1: Um,
0: that's right. You, know, you will.
1: I, I, oh, I didn't even uh, think that,
0: about that. That's right. That's right. To Ginger Singh last time, and me this time. And yeah. you know, if you can find Paul Zanakis, then you know, Paul can be number three. Um, but you know, I, I will we've say had a nerd nadir very- on thinking like a lawyer, by the way. thank you. exactly. it's It's all downhill from here or uphill, depending on sort of where you're standing. Um, but no, I, I think I think the difference between the two candidates, I mean, I think with Sanders, he seems to live in a world where if he tells enough of the truth and acts kindly to his opponents, that that's going to win the day. And I think that displays, I'd like to live in that world, but I don't think that world actually exists. I was watching the season premiere, Saturday Night Live, and they described Bernie Sanders as the Lorax. And I think <laughs> that if we actually lived in a Dr. Seuss novel, then I think his sort of tactics might play out. And, but I don't think we actually live in that reality. So, you know, the, the example everyone cites to is when Sanders sort of gave Hillary Clinton the pass on the whole email situation and how basically he said, I want to keep about, hearing
2: about your damn emails.
0: Exactly. And, and he sounded a little bit like your crazy grandfather at Thanksgiving, except instead of making like incendiary racist remarks, he's actually just being right. But I would say that that sort of politicking probably doesn't win the day. And especially for the sort of voters that he's appealing to. And whereas I think for Donald Trump, I think his voters sort of like that bombastic nature. And there was a great story in BuzzFeed several months ago by McKay Coppins, who sort of has, followed Trump for a while and I think earned the ire of, as what's lovingly described on the internet, Trumpalos, which is sort of the Donald Trump juggalo hybrid, which sort of and I think describes nice. a lot of what's going on relatively well. And Cobbin talks about how sort of people who like Trump sort of like the flashy smith. They like the fact that he has a private jet with his name that stretches across the entire fuselage. And they like the fact that he married a model. And they like the fact that he, he like throws around money. And so the way that he acts in his debates appeals to his fans and appeals to sort of that portion of the Republican demographic. And so I think so long as he keeps doing that, he'll continue to sort of do well in the poll. I, I think his eventual downfall will be basically that when you're one of 15 people, you can garner a quarter of uh, the pie and be winning. But when you're one of three, you have to expand beyond 25%. And I think Donald Trump has both a floor and a ceiling in the, in the Republican uh, primary. And I think that floor is about 25%. And I think that ceiling is about 30%. And I think once you get to like a final two or three candidates, that's not going to be enough.
2: But the top yeah, two or three I'm, candidates right now are all insurgent candidates. Like, are, right. are Ben Carson's voters going to toe the line and go back to Jeb?
1: I don't think so. Right. And, and I do think that he's – the most recent polling I saw showed Trump even exceeding that, that supposed ceiling. I think he was around 35 last time I saw. And, and Carson was somewhere around the high 20s, which if those – if you assume those two go to, in any way together, I don't know. But it strikes me as though Bernie's situation, what I wrote was that I didn't think he was even attempting to debate. I think he's very much, you could say it was a -a rope-a-dope strategy, to use a boxing analogy, but I don't think it's to set up a later kill shot. It was more, I don't think he has an interest in fighting Hillary. He has an interest in sticking around, being on a national stage, and saying the things he wants to say for the For the duration of the campaign, she made some openings at him where she lowered her guard, made statements about his mistakes on guns being a situation where, oh, you didn't think this was clear then. I thought it was clear where real openings for him to say, you know, various of the changes that she's made throughout the years are instances of her not knowing whether it's clear, like the Iraq war or something like that, which – those are her biggest weakness, even amongst supporters, is that the idea that she doesn't have core principles, and to the extent that she opens herself up like that, that's where the punch could have come, and it just didn't, and that was, that signaled to me that I don't think he's even attempting to fight, and that's why there was no reason why he even tried to make emails into a thing, not that it should have been or not, it's just, he has no interest in, having her not be in the race.
2: It re- I, I kind of agree with you. It was unclear to me watching the Democratic debate who else on that stage besides Hillary Clinton wanted to be president. I mean, I, I imagine that all five of those guys uh, would, would, have, would take the presidency if somebody gave it to them. Um, but really, the only person who seemed to really want it um, besides Hillary was uh, Jim Webb, and, yeah. and his strategy was to go full white man, as I put it on on Twitter. He he, Jim Webb and Donald Trump both think that there are enough angry white men out there uh, to <laughs> buoy them to a national election um, on their own. And I just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, my two uh, white male friends here, I just don't think you guys got the numbers anymore.
0: Well, I, I think each of those guys were on stage for different reasons. And I forget what reporter sort of went through it. And Bernie Sanders was on stage to talk about his issues. Hillary Clinton was on stage because he wants to be the next president of the United States. Martin O'Malley is on that stage because so he wants to be the next vice president of the United States. True. And I think Lincoln Chafee was on that stage because he got lost or <laughs> he really wants to be president of, like, his fifth-grade class. Because when, when your go-to answer is, I made that vote because my dad died and I was upset and I just got on that job, like, that's not – that's not a good answer, but I, probably I true though. Probably to, true. No, I, and that's the thing. Like, it's completely true. Like, I was reading a story about Chafee the other day, where apparently he went to—I think he did his undergrad at Brown—and he openly admits to not just marijuana use, but like relatively heavy cocaine use. And for a while, he became a was a shoe farrier. Correct. And he was like a school in Montana, and then sort of like bummed around various horse tracks around the country to put horseshoes on horses. And then he sort of just stumbled into becoming mayor of like the second largest town in Rhode Island because his dad was a former governor and senator. And then he's like, I'm a senator now. What do I do?
1: Yeah. No, that is an entirely accurate depiction of his background.
0: Yeah. So why was Webb on stage? Oh, and I think Webb was on stage because he thought it was a Republican debate and he just got lost. (laughs) And so like Jim Webb, I mean, he was secretary of Navy for Ronald Reagan and then he became a Democrat and he did a great job as a senator from Virginia. And now he's sort of back and he thinks that there's an opening to the right of Hillary Clinton and there's not. And so I think I don't know if he just misjudged it or he really just thinks there are not enough people are talking about guns in a positive way in the Democratic primary. I don't know. But I mean, Joe made this point earlier, and I think it's a good one. I think both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump got into this race thinking they weren't going to win and gotten it for different reasons. I think Donald Trump got into this race. He thought it'd be good for his brand. And it, then he all of a sudden started winning and he was like, wait, what's going on here? And I think Bernie Sanders got into this race wanting to talk about policy. And then he started doing well in the polls and he's like, wait, what's going on here? And I think both of them have just sort of continued on that path. Bernie Sanders was like nothing more to talk about single payer or tax rates from now until the middle of next year. And Donald Trump just wants to be on TV as much as humanly possible for as long as he possibly can.
2: Joe, do you think this is all great theater? Do you think we just end, do you think uh, when we we get to August, it's just going to be Hillary versus Bush?
1: No, I, I mean, I do think that Hillary probably has the democratic nomination sewed up. Just put aside whatever's going on in New Hampshire, which is next to Bernie's home state that it'll, it'll all shake out for Hillary. But On the Republican side, Bush looks like damaged goods. I've been saying this over and over again as the various pollster people of the world keep saying, oh, don't believe all this hype of all these insurgents. It's all going to turn around. You can say Nate Silver. He's not listening. It's OK. It's Nate Silver (laughs) and to a lesser extent, Nate Cohn, though. I think Nate Cohn's doing a little bit better job of it right now. But at the end of the day, I've never seen a candidate in my, at least my youthful, uh, Experience as a political watcher, I've never seen a candidate be a front runner and get knocked down into single digits and recover. Like it's a game of momentum in a lot of ways. And I've seen people take small three, four point dips. I've seen people move and fluctuate, but I've never seen anybody go from having 40% of the vote last year to five now, something like that. And I know there's a lot of people on that stage, but it's a game of momentum, and and Trump's right. If you look like a loser, you become a loser, and I think that's that's where Bush is. So one exceeds
2: expectations in Iowa by finishing fourth instead of sixth. Don't you, know you think? Because as as you maybe. pointed out, Joe, more than more than a lot of people, I think Bush has all the money.
1: He certainly has a lot of money, and actually, I think that's uh, Jim Newell wrote a great piece on this. That's actually a problem for the Republicans is that they've streamlined their process to get all the money handed out earlier, basically, and they were hoping to avoid a Santorum that would drag out the campaign, make sure that one guy got all the money, the donors make a decision, make, one guy gets all the money, they become the big elephant in the room, pun intended, and then nobody else enters the race, front load the delegates so that they all get handled, handed out early, it ends early, and they move on. What's happened is all the money has gone to a guy who clearly is a bad candidate, and now they're staring down the barrel of Trump going forward and potentially able to, even if he ultimately falters, collecting a lion's share of the delegates very quickly.
2: Guys, who's the best rhetorician left in this race? Okay, because last two election cycles, Obama, clearly the smoothest talker. Before that, Clinton, clearly the smoothest talker. In between those two, Bush, clearly the worst talker versus anybody he's talking
0: to. Who's the best rhetorician left? I mean, I remember watching the last Republican debate, and the thing that shines through the clearest to me was that the best politician, and I think rhetorician as well, was Marco Rubio. I mean, he's the one who actually stood up there and knows how to give a 30-second answer to a 30-second question and can get his point across relatively easily and can make a good point without saying too many words. And so I think he's probably- Nick, uh, ho- Nick, on. hold
2: on, hold on. I need to I need to get some water. Hold on. Can you just- uh, Okay, please, go on, go. Nick.
0: No, it's good. But I think he's the one because I think, I mean, I, I'm of the belief that sort of the less traditional candidates, the Carly and the Ben Parsons, the Donald Trumps of the world, will, will fall by the wayside relatively quickly. And I think with Jeb Bush, it's kind of remarkable because I'm not sure how the sky on of the, I'm going to say at this point, probably the largest or the greatest American political dynasty – Maybe ever is this bad at being a politician, and it 's not like he came from nowhere like he was governor of the third largest state in the country for many, many years i don 't know how he's this bad at campaigning, but if you put him by the wayside, you 're left with people like Rubio and Ted Cruz, I think is actually i mean you know getting back sort of into the legal realm. I mean Ted Cruz is renowned for being one of the brightest people to come out of Harvard law in the last several decades, and Alan Dershowitz talks about him glowingly at length, and so I think. His rhetorical abilities are wonderful. I think his views are just a bit too far right for the average American. And then on the left, I mean, no one wants to say Hillary Clinton because it seems like a boring answer, but it's Hillary Clinton. I mean, it just is. Her answers sound very produced, but that's also because that's how politicians talk. And she is not going to make that many missteps. And I think everything she says sounds Rehearsed, But that's not a bad thing because rehearsed means well thought out, well reasoned, and not going on some sort of rant for 30 seconds when you can't name what your favorite newspaper is.
2: I she started off the debate saying, my name is Hillary Clinton, as if there was a person watching the debate who didn't know that. I think she should have said, my name is Hillary Clinton, mark 3752. She wanted to make
1: sure you didn't think she was Amy Poehler. <laughs> or Kate McKinnon. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Right. I'm showing my age there. Well, I think we've pretty much come to the end of our time, unless you have something else, Ellie. No, I just
2: I honestly uh, just just wanted to hear what you guys thought about the rhetorical styles, because, look, I, I don't I don't think that these debates ultimately matter. I can't. I cannot – especially on the Democratic side where pretty much everybody running has a long history of public service. Like if you are honestly making your decision on who you're going to vote for based on a two-hour debate, you're an idiot, right? Like yeah. just Google these people. They will tell you what they think. They have voting records on what they think. So I well,
1: – that's ultimately the thing. The debate format is completely broken and terrible. And, and we we want to get into that. That it's just broken and terrible. They're not useful. They ask them questions about stuff that you could look up online. What they a good debate format would literally be. Now we're going to have one hour of discussion solely on healthcare and getting past. You voted on this and you voted on that. And two. What specifically do you want to do? What specifically is wrong with what you want to do? And that sort of nitty gritty stuff could be useful because you could tease out a sense of what kind of leader you're voting for. But as it is, it's it's just a smorgasbord of stump speeches. I think the other problem
0: also, especially on the Republican side, is that there's just too many people. I mean, you can't have an effective conversation in two hours and three hours, however many hours, with 15 people on stage or 10 people on stage. And I think someone mentioned the other day that the Democratic debate both combined the junior varsity and the varsity debate, that if this was like the Republicans, you would have had, you know, Governor Carcetti and um, the Furrier and uh, Jim Webb <laughs> off in like one corner, like talking about stuff and just had – uh, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders talking about policy for two hours. I think that actually would have gone better, especially if, as Joe suggested, they limited, like, this is going to be the healthcare debate, and you guys are going to talk about healthcare policy for two hours. And on the Republican side, you just can't have that in depth of conversation with 10 people, especially when half of them don't really know what they're talking about or have any real interest in engaging on the various topics. And so I, I think. The debates would get would be a lot better on both sides if they were far more limited in the number of people participating. But at this stage
1: of the process, you're probably not going to have that. Right. I can't top Governor Carcetti. Yeah. I mean, that was that was good. That was smooth. All right. So thank you, Nick, for coming by, talking to us about legal jobs and the debates too, to placate Ellie's uh, Ellie's interest in us. Thanks a lot for coming, Nick. Thank you guys so much for having me. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Remember, if you aren't already subscribed to us on iTunes or your other favorite podcast apps, please do so. Give us some reviews. That helps us move up the chain of recommended legal news podcasts. And uh, follow us at – I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at LENYC. We also write on Above the Law and ATLRedline.com. Do all of those things, and we'll see you, well, we'll talk to you. I keep wanting to say see. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Let's go, Mets. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook.